0: This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Welcome to Discovery, the radio show for podcast creators and listeners. I'm Cal Steiger, your host. And this week, we dig deep into misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and propaganda. We once again sample Deep Dive a podcast series from Coldwater Communications on the role and responsibilities of public relations. This week's host is Theodora Jean, Exec Director of Coldwater Communications, and she speaks with PhD candidate Alicia Wanless, Director of Partnership for Countering Influence Operations for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Big title, bigger job. Alicia spends part of her day studying, explaining, and publishing about what some people feel is the biggest challenge of our time, misinformation. Stay tuned now for Information Wars, an episode from the Deep Dive podcast series.
1: Navigating a public image can be challenging, whether you're building a brand, rebuilding your reputation, or just trying to get on the radar. You need the public to trust you. But does the public trust anyone anymore? And has it ever trusted public relations? Welcome to Deep Dive, powered by Coldwater Communications. I'm your host, Tamara Stanners. In the age of information, it's
0: surprisingly
1: difficult for people to get accurate information.
2: With so much information living online, new issues arise.
0: Propaganda. Fake news. Disinformation.
2: Misinformation.
0: misinformation, Fake accounts.
2: Phony news sites.
0: Unreliable sources. Conspiracy theories.
3: Information disorder.
1: Organizations and individuals have blurred the lines between fact and opinion leaving the general public confused as to what's actually happening in the world.
3: Kind of struggling to determine real versus fake.
1: It's easy to say, check your sources, but a lot of people would rather read or hear something that confirms what they already believe rather than learn a truth that contradicts it.
2: Confirmation bias is the tendency of people's minds to seek out information that supports the views they already hold. Nobody has the time or the energy to think critically about every piece of information that they
1: encounter. So many people wake up in the morning, they scroll through their Facebook Uh news feed, they click on the links. I mean, if I'm doing it, I don't have time to double check the links. Social media organizations are trying to make you feel more comfortable. So they are trying to create an environment where you see more and more news that you would like to read in the morning when you wake up with your coffee
2: it will always be more emotionally satisfying to think critically about ideas that we don't like than about ideas that we do like. The result is that even the best trained of us tend to use our critical thinking skills to reinforce our own biases instead of to combat them.
1: So how do we discern the difference between fact and fiction? And how do we enforce accountability for those who choose to mislead the masses? It's a deep subject to dive into, and we have two strong and successful women who are ready to take the plunge. Theodore Jean is the founder of Coldwater Communications and has worked in PR in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors for over 13 years. Theodora will take the lead in this important conversation with Alicia Wanless, who is director at the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So let's get better informed about information.
2: Alicia, thanks so much for making the time. Do you think you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and the Carnegie Endowment and what you do there?
3: So as you know, I've been working on issues related to the information environment and how things like propaganda are changing in a digital age for a number of years. I have perhaps a strange distinction of having worked on almost every aspect of the influence problem. That includes running strategic communications, campaigns, just working with militaries, governments, academia, and the tech sector across all of those different divides. And so one of the things that struck me by the time I was helping Facebook was that we have some big divides between different stakeholders that are all working and operating within the information environment. And what we really needed was to bring that multi-stakeholder community together together to work towards evidence-based policy to guide interventions in the information environment. And so this became the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations, which I run at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The endowment is actually the U.S.'s oldest think tank. It's been around for a long time, early 1900s. It's actually quite influential in its quiet way. And they have a number of different programs. We sit in the Tech and International Affairs program as a project underneath that. And we're working on creating with Jake Shapiro at Princeton University. We also run a multi-stakeholder crisis response network with the G7 rapid response mechanism in Ukraine, among other things related to looking at regulation and increasing data access for research purposes, et cetera.
2: So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is the notion around, you know, miss and disinformation and what the difference is between the two, because I think, The more common term that people hear a lot is fake news, and we're living in an era of fake news, and they don't necessarily know the distinction between the two terms. So do you think we could start by maybe just defining them? Off the
3: top, I'll say that we have some serious definitional problems in this space. There's a lot of terms that are being bandied about, and there's a lot of confusion around terms. This remains a problem even among the field that's studying this. But mis- and disinformation both are misleading or false information that is being spread. Misinformation happens organically. It can occur through things like rumors, people just making things up to make sense of the world, whereas disinformation is done deliberately.
2: And you've done a lot of work in the propaganda Space as well, correct?
3: Yes. And there's another term that is generally contested.
2: So, can you tell us a little bit about propaganda and the work that you've done?
3: I would define propaganda as being activities and information that is being spread with an intentional aim to affect an audience or an outcome.
2: And would you ever apply the term propaganda to anything beyond something that a government might be doing?
3: So often propaganda is used as this term by many democracies to distinguish what they do, which they'll tend to call strategic communications, information operations, against what an adversary is doing, which they'll label as propaganda and say is wrong. I think that's really trying to euphemize our way out of a tricky situation. We really lack lines in the sand that determine what is acceptable in terms of interventions in the information environment. So using these different terms is confusing, and it doesn't actually get us to the deeper problems that we're facing in terms of needing to really have these rules in place to guide us of what's acceptable.
2: There have been some drastic shifts, I think, in the information environment. Can you maybe speak to some of the changes that we've seen in misinformation, the sharing of disinformation, fake news over the last few years? Are these shifts that are things that are attributed to COVID or the pandemic? Or is this something that we've seen sort of cyclically in history over the last, I don't know, a few decades, every time there's something major that affects a large majority of people?
3: So disinformation and misinformation have been around humans as long as we've been trying to make sense of the world of communicating with each other. It is a naturally occurring phenomenon that happens. It is exacerbated when we enter periods of uncertainty. There's a bit of a trifecta that happens in human psychology that makes it a little bit more salient. We're driven to try to find answers no matter what those answers are. And often in a crisis situation, accurate information isn't going to be surfacing anytime soon. So we'll jump onto and believe things like disinformation. The second problem is that in an uncertain situation, humans are also more inclined to have magical thinking. So we'll confuse correlation and causation in our attempt to make sense and we'll connect dots where they shouldn't be. The third thing is we also have an heightened need to belong to groups. And so in an uncertain situation, this need to be in a group really is strengthened and that pushes us in certain places. So when it comes to COVID, this is just a perfect storm. Plus we had you know, advances in technology that allowed people to connect in ways that led people down certain rabbit
2: holes. The changing technology, the rapid spread of information, do you feel as though, and I know that it's not a black and white answer, but social media platforms, for example, are they doing more harm than good? It's really difficult to say.
3: We just don't have the means to be able to study social media in the context of the information environment. And again, here we come back to the problem of mixing up correlation and causation. We see a rise in social media at the same time as we see some other problems, and we assume that they must be tied. We lack, as a research community, access to data to be able to do that kind of research to really understand what social media's role is in the modern information environment. The second thing is we lack the engineering resources. So even if data is made available, which more of it will be thanks to the Digital Services Act in the EU soon, we don't necessarily have the capacity to do that kind of research at scale. Engineering resources and infrastructure are extremely expensive. Research outfits are competing with industry to hire engineers to be able to facilitate that, and they just can't afford it. So often what happens is it's project-based and we can only really measure this little intervention right here, right now and not the longer term implications of it. So there's a whole lot of gaps in the space to be able to make sense of things and then add to that, we don't really study the information environment as a system. We study its component parts. So a lot of research is on Twitter or Facebook. It's not necessarily looking at how those information flows move between traditional media, other types of influencers and other ways in which people communicate. So... You know, there's clearly a lot of issue with social media. It needs to be further studied. There's clearly a need to have better clarity around rules, how it's governed. It would be great to see something like operational reporting happen, whereby we actually get an understanding of how they're developing policies and enforcing them and that this is reported on consistently over time. There's a lot of space and things to be done to get to an answer for that question.
2: So how do you think that the average person can really arm themselves or inform themselves about what news is real versus fake? The lines have become really blurry and certainly when you're using social media as a source for your news and information, it's very easy to kind of go down this rabbit hole, as you said, or get in an echo chamber where it's only your particular views that are reinforced. So how does the average person become media literate?
3: First and foremost, what I would say is remain calm. Just because information can come to us quickly doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we should jump on or that we should have to jump to get an answer. I think understanding that we have some shortcomings as humans that make us susceptible in certain periods of time like a crisis can help us maybe check ourselves. Why is this post or this news article really provoking me? What is the underlying emotion that's driving me to this? What does the person who's sending this want me to do? And if it's to give out information about, you know, yourself personally, this may be a security risk. If it's to provoke me into being really angry, so i will share this post, maybe stop and ask why. And then I think there's just some aspects of media literacy that can be fostered and developed. It's out there to read, but like looking through an article and saying, you know, how do I assess the truthfulness of this? Like who is being quoted? Do I know who this person is? What is this media outlet? I think it's unfortunately coming down to people just having to be a lot more educated about how information is being put to them, by whom and for what purposes. What's happening is that it's being foisted on the individual to try to solve this problem when really it's quite systemic.
2: Yeah, and it's like this general distrust of the media within certain pockets or communities of people that whole notion of like, look at the source. Is it a credible media source? If you just generally think that the media is not credible, (laughs) you're going to be looking at alternate sources of information that are in themselves not credible. So it's hard for people to know who to believe, especially if they subscribe to that view that no one's to be trusted.
3: Yeah, I think the first step there is to really stop and ask, why aren't we trusting it? Who has pushed us to not trust media institutions? And I don't, think it's far that a person has to dig to figure out that it's a lot of political actors. And then I would be asking myself the next question, what do they have to gain from me not trusting media anymore? Right? The whole idea of like defund CBC comes from one political corner in Canada. And why might they not want you to trust media and an institution that, you know, has been well-governed and has structures in place to prevent it from being a propaganda outlet? Of course, we're putting this back on the individual, but you know, maybe there needs to be some better measures in place to prevent people with big audiences from spreading disinformation. There are ways in which we could revisit, I think, some of the interventions in the information environment that we just haven't been doing. Like, is there a greater responsibility on political actors to not lie about key institutions and democracies? I think so.
2: And so bringing it back to public relations, what responsibility do PR practitioners have to combat these issues?
3: PR as a field is... Really at the forefront, their very job is, in a way, not to mean this in a negative term, but to manipulate the information environment for a specific purpose. Sometimes it's good, right? Like we want people to be healthier. We want them to wear seatbelts. We want people to make better choices. And in that regard, there's an entire application of it that's perfectly good in the interest of society. But then you also get these other actors who just because you can make use of tools doesn't mean you should. And they also really you know, degrade the overall information environment and give PR a bad name. I don't think anybody listening is going to be surprised to hear that Cambridge Analytica would fall under that. Bell Pottinger would fall under this. And these guys, you know, they did things that were underhanded. But also as democracies, we haven't done a great job at outlining lines in the sand of what's acceptable from unacceptable. Now, just to kind of come back full circle, a democracy, there's always going to be a certain amount of influence that has to occur because we have to convince other people that whatever idea I have is the best idea and in the best interest of society. At the same time, going over the line of manipulation takes away the very legitimacy of democracy, which is that people can make free and informed decisions of their own free will. And... We really need to get to the bottom of where is too much manipulation, especially in an environment where we don't understand how it functions. The cookies on websites that you visit, they track what you do. Your spending behavior, it's information that can come from using credit cards and banking records, uh, where you move with your phone. And these things all come together to put a pattern around a person that can then be used to target. But the average person really doesn't know very much about that or how it works. They also know very little in terms of how information is packaged and manipulated and put in front of them. And these tools are available to some in PR. The question is, where's the line where it goes too far? Now, I think that's for society to figure out, not necessarily PR people. But what I would strongly encourage PR people to remember is that they're a part of this environment. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should.
2: It's super interesting and it kind of ties into an episode that we did about ethics. PR practitioners, in many respects, can and should be like lawyers in that you can represent a client even if you don't necessarily, you know, feel that it's aligned with what you think is right, but you can still do the work in an ethical way. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about that and how much of this is a personal moral decision versus with a lot of things. It's not a very clear right and wrong. It's driven by the practitioner and what they believe to be right and true.
3: (laughs) That does raise like a lot of moral and ethical issues. I can't speak on what other people should do. I know I wouldn't be able to, which is perhaps another reason why I'm not working in strategic communications anymore. I do think though there should at least be ethical considerations for how those campaigns are then run and make sure that they don't go over the line, don't use things like disinformation. You know, are you manipulating people to the point where, you know, they're behaving irrationally and you're provoking them? I think those are lines that really shouldn't be crossed. Also, just obfuscating the origin of things. I think all of those things really should be under question. I mean, if I had to give like my five tenets of what I think strategic communicators should be following. One is that remember that everything that you do, there's a reaction, right? So you're not just communicating. There's going to be some sort of reaction or potential fallout. So doing bad things will come back at you in the end or your client. It's not great. And the third thing is that everything is interconnected. There is no, you know, far off space where you're, you know, not being reached now. Like you can, everything you do can move around the world in a flash. As I already said before, just because you can do it really doesn't make it right. So considering those things is always key. And then the last thing is beware of snake oil. There are a lot of companies who are offering solutions claiming that they can manipulate the information environment or reach audiences. And a lot of it is snake oil. They're not really able to do what they can do. And so I think keeping that as a consideration is also key. This is how you, you know, companies could end up using like Cambridge Analytica, and it's not going to end well.
2: One of the things that we are very mindful of, too, at Coldwater is when a new client approaches us to run a campaign, there has to be some critical thought that is applied rather than just taking... The data and the information that the client themselves, who has an agenda <laughs> that they're driving, rather than just taking their information and trusting it to be true and then going out with the information to help amplify it. So there's that challenge to like probe and dig a little deeper. And I think this is why we're seeing an increase now in PR agencies like ours, like Apostrophe PR based here in Vancouver that are really focused on using PR for good and what they believe to be good. And there's a lot of work that's being done to kind of focus efforts into charitable organizations and NGOs rather than helping big companies to drive sales and work on things that may may be not as rewarding for the individual as a PR practitioner, but also maybe not entirely for the greater good. Bringing it back to myths and disinformation, it's a really messy playing field right now. And so what role do you think that governments should play, if any, in a time when trust in government is so low? If there are government interventions, then how much of that is sort of limiting free speech and censorship? I would agree that there are big questions about some of the interventions that are being
3: made, especially when it comes to pushing things like deplatforming, removing specific users from social media or pushing for disinformation to be banned from social media. I think all of these types of interventions are really risky at this point because we don't really understand the impact of them. So I would caution governments to not jump to regulating content moderation or anything like that in the near future. What they should be doing in the short term, because they are one key intervention point that can make a massive difference, is investing in regulation that would increase transparency. So introducing regulation around operational reporting that informs about things like who's making requests for data access from companies, What kind of research is being done by companies? How do they develop their policies? How do they manage content moderation, etc.? And this is more like aggregated, regular reporting that just informs people about their operations. So that's one. The second thing is, They should be introducing regulation that governs data access for research purposes. This is a huge holdup that's preventing us from understanding things like the impact of disinformation as well as the impact of interventions that can be made in the information environment. So governments really need to introduce rules around that. Ideally, on both counts, operational reporting and data access for researchers, those things should be broadly harmonized across like-minded democracies. The better they're harmonized, the more likely they are to work and that this Handful of companies that, you know, we want to be able to understand more of what they're doing can't say no. Um, so we can start with the DSA in Europe and just build that out uh, in other countries like Canada and the US. Then the third thing that I think governments should really be doing is investing in research. So we need to speed up research on the information environment and we need shared infrastructure to do that. The only way that's going to happen at the scale we need is if it is multinational, like Other models have been, there's a Center for Nuclear Research in Europe is a great example that can be based on to really speed that kind of research up. And then there's this one other sticking point that I think they really need to lead a charge on, and that is coordinating some sort of discussion with civil society, academia, also industry to really articulate what are the principles that should be guiding democracies in terms of intervening in the information environment. And that could be at a high level right now. Does that mean like the absence of information pollution or the absence of the freedom from covert foreign interference? We need to articulate those and then they need to be the guiding light of how we go about intervening and we need to follow those. So those are the four areas that I would say governments really should be playing a role quickly.
2: It also makes me think about the speed at which technology evolves And the rate at which government officials are able to understand that technology in order to implement some policy or governance around it. Like if you don't fully understand it and it's getting ahead of you, you're always going to be scrambling to catch up to the technology, are you not? So
3: now you're talking to something near and dear to my heart that I just defended yesterday, which is my PhD thesis. It looked at other ways that we could study the information environment. Specifically, can we study it the same way that we study the physical environment? And the short answer is yes. But in doing that, what it does is it gives us a way of understanding this space that is not based on just looking at the latest initial technology. And that is a problem that we keep having. Every time we introduce new technology that changes how we process and share information, it ends up resulting in some changes in conditions and ultimately some disturbances that follow, like information competition and information pollution. And knowing that, we should be aware by the next time when something comes in like virtual reality or changing to gaming consoles where people can engage, we're going to have similar problems if the shift is big enough. And so then we need to be making immediate investments in, like, improving people's critical thinking, awareness campaigns for how the information environment works, and building that over time to prevent things like we just saw recently with COVID and how people are falling down these conspiracy rabbit holes. So I think if we were to change the way that we look and understand the information environment we may be able to find proactive indicators of when problems may happen and intervene sooner as opposed to just trying to deal with a threat after it's emerged, which is far too late. Like there's probably nothing we can do at this point in time about some of the narratives that have taken root. And moreover, all those interventions are so easily politicized by political actors that trying to do something after the fact is just way too late. What's next
2: for you now? Like you've defended your thesis yesterday. What do you think um, the next, let's say, year to five years will look like for you?
3: I don't think I have an easy answer for that and not much changes with the PhD other than trying to turn that into a book. A bulk of my work in the near future is trying to build this institute for research on the information environment. We will also be looking at how we can apply this multi-stakeholder crisis response network to other at-risk democracies so that maybe we can get ahead of crises and be able to respond. I don't see myself running those campaigns that would be increasing awareness, but I would love somebody to do that. And they can definitely count on me for advice on how the information environment works and what can go into that. There's just so much work to be done. This is another reason why at work at the partnership, we have taken a multi-stakeholder approach because we need a community and we need a great many stakeholders who are already working on this to come together, de-conflict, and ensure that we're not duplicating if we want to get ahead of this as quickly as we need to.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You have so much on your plate and I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for having me. I like what you're trying to do. The thing is, we're
3: always going to have to engage in influence, no matter what. That's just what it means to be in society. And therefore, we also need to embrace that there's going to be a role for conducting that. The question is, how do we do it and what are the rules around it? And I love that you're thinking about it and talking about it.
1: There's a lot to digest from that layered and compelling conversation. But Alicia has provided us with a number of tools to combat both misinformation and disinformation. How we choose to use those tools is up to us. Our sincere thanks to Alicia for joining Theodora, who is committed to having what can be difficult discussions like this one. What is the role of PR when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? We'll dive into that on the next episode of Deep Dive. Subscribe to Deep Dive for new episodes every month. For more information and social pages, visit coldwater-communications.ca.
0: That is our show for this week. If you would like to hear this podcast again or more of Deep Dive, a podcast series that takes a behind-the-curtains look at PR, go to anywhere you access your podcasts. Deep Dive is an everything podcast production. Tune in next week as we have another episode of Millennial Balance.